If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Commander Ronald Leonard Smith Sr. Commander Smith served in the U.S. Navy and served across the globe in the 80s and 90s. Uh, my name is Ronald Leonard Smith Sr., uh, and I mention that because I have both a junior who's a naval aviator and, um, and I have a grandson who's the third. Uh, I was a surface warfare officer, uh, a ship driver, an 1110, and uh, an abused child in, as opposed to being an aviator, and also um, I was retired at the rank of commander. My maternal grandfather was an immigrant, and I, uh, all the uncles were in the Second World War uh, with the, the kid being in Korea. With, the, with few exceptions, all my male cousins uh, were in the service, uh, one West Pointer and one Kings Pointer. Uh, early on, I was introduced to the Army-Navy game, and, and, and while that's not reality for a, for a young kid, it's, it's, it's a lot of uh, pageantry, and I was interested in going to a military academy. I actually was accepted at West Point, NAPS, Naval Academy Prep School, and the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point. And with absolutely no desire or reason to go into the Army, I went to West Point, was uh, developed a duodenal ulcer during my plebe year. And, and at the end of 1974, there wasn't a need for a whole lot of second lieutenants, and I was uh, medically discharged, honorably discharged, medically separated. I wanted to get back into the service and I went into the Navy because I was a, almost a petulant child in that uh, I thought, well, I'm not going back into the Army. So uh, I, uh, I'm a Penn State graduate and uh, I went, went to the Navy. I thought I was going to be an aviator, ended up being a, a, a ship driver and had absolutely no desire to make it a career. But over time, things, things happened. My uh, first tour uh, my wife was pregnant with uh, our first child, and uh, she said, you better have a job. And I had, uh, I said, all right, I'll take another set of orders. And then from there, I, was a, I became an admiral's aide, and you really can't quit when you get that. And next thing you know, you wake up, and it's past 10 years. You say, well, I may as well stay. I understand that it's a kinder, gentler Navy now, but the, uh, but the tradition of, of when you cross the equator, uh, for those who had not, you're considered a polywog. You're just a slimy wog, and those who have crossed it are are navigators and uh, of great of great acclaim, and so they get their opportunity to initiate you. And I'm not sure what the Navy does now, but back in the day, you would uh, our ships uh, stored up garbage instead of disposing of it. So we had the fun of crawling through a garbage chute. And then some of the boiler technicians 
had frozen old fire hoses. So the old canvas fire hoses in a you know, 24-inch um, lens or so and had kept them in the freezer. So they were used as paddles. And because I was the second engineer, I had the, I had the pleasure and, and honor of going through that, that shoot twice where not only are you crawling through garbage, but then, um, and then I was getting spanked on, on the way. And then there's different tubs where you got dipped in slimy, just slimy stuff. Uh, not, you know, nothing, nothing hazardous, but just, you know, just awful. And then, then you get the opportunity right before you're almost finished, you get the opportunity to drink a truth serum. So that, that purifies your system so you can become a noble shellback. And that's, uh, that's often uh, whatever else is in it. it, it there's, there's always a lot of hot sauce. So you get, so you get the uh, opportunity to drink eight, eight, eight ounces or something, but 16 ounces, you just have to chug it. You just have to have to chug it down. Um, and then it probably has changed uh, with the, the physical standards, but you got the, the fattest guy on board. He was the baby and he had to go kiss his belly. And there would be grease of some sort, and that's what, and that's what we did. And that, uh, uh, and then at, the, at that point, you you were allowed to go spend, you know, fifteen twenty minutes in the shower, which is a Hollywood shower, which is something that you would never do, just to just to get all the grit and, and stuff off you. But uh, it's one of the initiations in the Navy that actually will go into your service record as opposed to maybe being in the North Atlantic or going through the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal. But uh, becoming a shellback is, uh, actually, actually goes uh, on, in your record. I don't know in this um, politically correct world anymore whether uh, those, those sorts of uh, rights still exist, but uh, there's, a, there's a pride. There's a real pride having, having gone through it. Um, and and most of us have uh, have framed our uh, our shellback document. When you get underway, you're living with these people for six months at a time, and uh, regardless of the size of a ship, it's a small city. Uh, it operates around the clock. Uh, people standing watches, uh, both uh, on the bridge and in Combat Information Center, and as well as uh, down in the. Uh, the main engine spaces. We have cooks, we have a uh, uh, postal department, uh, laundry, and everyone works together and you have to work together, otherwise you can't accomplish the mission. There's no doubt going to sea is a very difficult career choice. But I also thought if you don't want command, if you don't want the keys to the car, then you're in the wrong line of work. So my aspiration once, um, once I was on my first ship, actually, was was to uh, eventually achieve command. Um, some trying times were as as chief engineer, for example, or main propulsion assistant, second engineer, on some pretty old and challenging ships. And even at that, when I realized that I could make the boat go, or I I could make these things happen, and I, and I have good people, or even marginal people who were willing to uh, work hard at, at some points, 
then. Um, I thought this is an honorable way to go. I also thought that uh, it's we're instruments of public policy. When something gets implemented, then depending where you are in the Pacific or in the Mediterranean or in the Indian Ocean, you end up getting close to where the action is. And for all the time that I had to spend away from my family, the idea that I was doing something real, I wasn't missing the birth of a child because I was at a golf tournament. I was in the midst of, well, in, in, in the news, whether it was in the Middle East or Guantanamo Bay with uh, 52,843 uh, Haitians and Cubans uh, during that rescue effort. So uh, I just kept, yeah, it's not very sophisticated, but I just kept uh, following the career path, uh, trying to become the better, the best professional that I could. And uh, eventually I achieved command. Now I achieved command ashore on two different occasions. And one was with, uh, I'll just say cats and dogs units, kind of a, a specialty stuff. And while command at sea is number one in the Navy and command ashore is a distant second, it sure beats whatever's in third place. My first ship was the Raleigh LPD-1, which is an amphib. Uh, amphibious transport dock is what it stands for. And we carry Marines and SEALs and uh, the many subs, the diving units. Has two helo spots uh, uh, back aft a very large well deck. And uh, my first job was to be the uh, well deck control officer and um, working in the deck department. I had the after part of the ship. We finished after being in the Indian Ocean and the Straits of Hormuz and Persian Gulf, uh, working with the Omanis and, and others in what I call the first Ayatollah back in the uh, early 80s. Uh, we actually lost our stern cape. Uh, in, in an operation off of uh, Tunisia. And that was uh, getting back getting back across uh, the Atlantic Ocean was, uh, was a bit of a challenge. Uh, the, the next job I had was main propulsion assistant, second engineer on the Caloosahatchee AO-98. And Caloos was an old oiler commissioned in 1944, right at the end of the uh, Second War. And when it was uh, jumbo-wise, was actually enlarged at one point, and we carried about six million gallons, uh, about one and a half um, million gallons of uh, aviation fuel, and a loadout of food and ammunition, uh, both shells and missiles, for a battle group for about 30 days. But the ship was something out of an old uh, black and white movie in that it was uh, the, both the fire room and the engine room were cavernous and everything was just old and there was no automation to it. Uh, and that, that was a challenge. I had good help. I had good chiefs in the, in the fire room and had just a, not the best chief petty officers for the, for the engine room, but uh, I was blessed with a good first class uh, machinist mate who, who eventually made senior chief. And he ran the, the, the show. And we were able to answer commitments everywhere from uh, the UNITAS supporting South American uh, navies and U.S. fleet down working with the U.S. navies all the way back through Grenada uh, when, we, when we got called back for it. 
my next job was chief engineer on McCloy, which was uh, an old an old frigate. And again, uh, it was not the Cadillac of of ships. Uh, but I was very fortunate to have the uh, the chief's mess that I had there to uh, to support me, and then had uh, very promising junior officers. And I would just tell the chiefs, "You run the show, you teach them, and then they come and they eventually learn and can and can brief me without." You know, without you standing, uh, you know, uh, uh, right in their hip pocket, we had an awful lot of uh, assignments because we we because we were always ready. Uh, we spent a lot of time that in the Caribbean on the on the drug run on the, the drug interdiction. And at one point, uh, we received an award from the Coast Guard, uh, calling us the the top gun in uh, in, in drug interdiction. That we were we were. While we were a small frigate, we were the Navy's top winner uh, at, at that point in, in tonnage of uh, drugs uh, that were confiscated. The most harrowing, I guess, or the, uh, the most, I'll call it interesting part of that tour was we were finishing a, a, an assignment. We're on, on Liberty in Miami, Florida, and, there were, and we got a recall to outrun a hurricane. And as we were heading north, the tracking system, the OTSR tracking system, put us square into the middle of a nor'easter. And that particular storm ended up being written about in, in the book and then the movie, uh, The Perfect Storm. So we were battered about pretty significantly. And at one point, our stub mast broke. Now, that's the top of the ship with uh, just a combination of wind and waves, uh, the, the metal... Uh, gave way, it was held on by the cables and the cable runs. And at that point, uh, we were having trouble keeping suction from the sea to, to get, bring in water for our evaporators to make uh, fresh water for the crew, but also boiler water and, and, and feed water to keep the it was a steam propulsion plant to keep our ship going. So we, at one point, went and told the commanding officer, that uh, there was no way we were going to make it back to Norfolk or even up to the safety of the James River. And we recommended that we go into uh, Moorhead City, North Carolina. Now, our navigator at the time was a Coast Guard exchange officer who was very familiar with it because I'd been on Raleigh. I had been there uh, several times picking up and discharging uh, the Marines. And our ops boss had also been on a Gator, had also been on an Amphib, one of his previous tours. Uh, the skipper was uh, number four in his class at Annapolis and went to Harvard for graduate school and was on CNO staff. So he he didn't he, he didn't understand the uh, places like Moorhead City and and the lower the lower status of uh, of some of the ship drivers. Uh, but he he but he but he was certainly a smart guy and we and um, so that's so so we made uh, made way into there. In addition, though, to the ship being slightly crippled, was the uh, while Moorhead City has a has a deep channel, so that it can take the large deck amphibs that are essentially small aircraft carriers. The sands shift quite often, so while we had on paper and, and on the charts we had enough room for our sonar dome uh, to get through, and that we wouldn't run aground or, or damage anything. 
we had to be very, very careful on navigating into port. The pilots came, and it was amusing because I said, the pilot's going to have one of two names, last names, Midget or Piner. And he was kind of, the captain was kind of skeptical. And he says, oh, you would know that. And my colleague said, oh, yeah, there's only two families. And uh, the Midgets married into the Piners. So, no, you're going to get dad or granddad or one of the grandsons. Uh, and sure enough, that's what we did. We had uh, we got granddad and um, we got old Captain Piner and then one of his grandsons under instruction. Um, we then spent about a week uh, rep- uh, repairing before we went back to Norfolk. Uh, the postscript to that is I was to be best man for um, uh, a fellow who had been one of my midshipmen when I was an en- ensign. And later, uh, uh, Admiral Paul Becker was the J-2, was the intel officer on the Joint Chiefs of Staff under General Dempsey. So I asked the, the skipper if I could leave, if, if I could leave early uh, after the repairs were done and, and, and make my way up so I could attend the rehearsal dinner and, and the wedding. And his comment, without any malice, it was, Chief Engineer, there are many people I'll sail without, and the engineer is not one of them. So fortunately, the wedding was in the evening, and we got back into Norfolk uh, about 11 o'clock that morning. Yeah, I, I missed the party at my house. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Smith, who's a Hawkeye aviator, was the ring bear. He was three years old at the time, and uh, it was the first time that I was not recognized as me. I was recognized as Ronnie's daddy, and that Aunt Doris came up from South Raleigh and or, or South Norfolk, and and then Uncle Jim came down from Long Island, and 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 everyone just knew me because I was standing there with this uh, with this small child. First of all, I, I, when I speak to groups, I I try to tell them there doesn't have to be a war going on, and every day of the year, every day of the year, every day of the year, from both the Atlantic and the Pacific. There is a carrier battle group, and there's a marine amphibious ready group. And whether they're in the Mediterranean or the Indian Ocean or uh, close to uh, the South China Sea, but they are out there. These women and men are out there every day of the year, Fourth of July, Christmas, Thanksgiving. There is somebody from the Navy and the Marine Corps team uh, out supporting the national security. And, and one of the first things an ensign learns is take Mother Nature on the points because she always is going to win and the sea is just so big and, she, and Mother Nature is so powerful. So anybody who, who's out in anything like that, you know, you have to, and oh, and lives to talk about it, then, uh, yeah, then you have to take your hat off to them. With all the uh, technologies and all the um, improvements in weather forecasting, you could still be out um, regardless of where you are and catch a rogue system coming through. And that will just, uh, depending on the size of your ship, and, and, and frankly, it doesn't matter. I've been on large deck amphibs and carriers that I may as well have been back on a frigate that the, the way you can get tossed around. The sea churns, the wind churns, the, the wind churns the seas. Uh, and then you, uh, while your system says that everything should be clear, but instead you're getting a freshwater washdown. I mean, you're getting you're getting rained on, and it's sometimes uh, your visibility just occludes. Your, uh, a, a fog can come in, 
and you really have to uh, depend on your electronic navigation at, at, at that point. Mother Nature is unpredictable. If you're flying over Iraq or any uh, down, uh, for those of us down below, we also had the fun of the dust storm coming to uh, to come into our air intakes, so that would fog up and any fresh air systems we had. So you end up getting a lot of cheesecloth. Tell me where in your training pipeline anybody told you that you need rolls and rolls of cheesecloth because uh, that, that, that ended up just being the best filtering system uh, to, keep, to keep the sand down. Uh, so you have water, you have air, and now, and now you have sand. And then, you know, frankly, there's some, big, there's some pretty big particles of sand uh, up in the North Atlantic where it's a, a, a little bit different, but then you run into ice and you run into uh, uh, potentially with icebergs. And there's, I mean, that's no joke. You see 10% of it and you hope that your sonar is working so that uh, you, can, you can get an idea of how big or, how, or at least where this thing starts and stops so that you can go around it and you don't hit it. There's little, uh, some differences in the North Atlantic and, and uh and in the Caribbean, for example, on a ship is your sea intake temperature. So if you're in the Caribbean, for example, your water is hot and you have a hard time making water for your evaporators. Up in the North Atlantic, the water is just freezing. Um, I mean, it's obviously in the 30s. But that pressure and temperature differential changes how you're running things in uh, main control when you're bringing water into your evaporators to make water for both the crew and for uh, steam propulsion ships. But it's each place, whether you're in a uh, warm temperature or up in the North Atlantic or, or in the Gulf, people don't understand the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Gulf is the same place, but it's very, uh, it's very challenging. I used to get in trouble with the commanding officer when we were down in the Caribbean because it was so hot that I'd turn, off, I'd turn off the hot water, I'd turn off the steam. If your intake uh, was 90 some degrees, and I would just tell everybody take ambient temperature showers. And you know, most people were good with that, but when the old man, when the number one guy in the ship says, turn my steam back on, well, you're, you're kind of obligated to turn the steam back on. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.
I had command at shore, uh, not command at sea, but taking command uh, the first time was a sense of tremendous pride and also, holy cow, what do I do now, coach? Because I was, I was responsible for uh, a number of uh, women and men and everything from keeping them uh, on task to perform their duties as well as trying to get people promoted, trying to take care of people's families when they had um, anything from you know health problems to uh, other uh, housing problems. And you're the boss. I made jokes and said, hey, I loved being king. And I did. But the other part of it was everything stops at you. I was very fortunate. Uh, the two times I held command, I was very fortunate to have a superb senior enlisted advisor. So uh, my my master chief and then a senior chief were uh, not only superb at what they did and taking care of the crew, but uh, were pretty candid with me at times when we didn't quite see eye to eye. And they'd say, "Sir, can we can we take a walk?" And I I, I knew I knew I was in trouble. Um, and frankly, about seventy percent of the time, I listened to my senior enlisted advisor. 20% of the time, there were things that I had not shared or was not able to share. Uh, I said, Master Chief, just, let's just do it to get the XO. And, but um, I said, just, just do it. And they would. And that other 10% of the time was almost this, something as simple as, do we paint the door red or we paint the door blue? Well, if I want the door blue, it, you know, I'm... I'm the boss, so we're going. We're going to do it my way. But that, I mean, those 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 moments uh, were were few and far between. But I had the I had the good fortune of having very good people uh, to work with me and to work for me. One of the things I learned is you have to take care of your people first, and while it's far more critical doing it on, on a ship or in a, an air squadron or, or someplace overseas. It also translates later, later on into civilian life and taking care of your employees, taking care of people who, who work with you and work for you. But the idea is you have to work hard and they have to see you work hard. In fact, it was Frederick the Great who said, your troops must eat before you eat, your troops must sleep before you sleep, your troops must be clothed and housed before you are clothed and housed, but you also must let your troops see that you are depriving yourself for them. And uh, on the face of it, it may seem a little bit selfish, but the idea is when the, the women and men who work for you and you're asking them to be in harm's way, for example, or, or, or give up, even if there's not a war, uh, give up six, seven months of their lives and miss family birthdays, anniversaries, uh, their children' birthdays, all of those events, they have to have someone to believe in. Like it or not, you end up being that guy or you end up being that gal. And you have to work hard to earn their trust. And then they will do things, not just because it's their duty and, and, the, and they're good sailors or good Marines, but they will do it because they also don't want to let the old man down. They don't want, they want to do things 
so that all of us win and all of us can accomplish a, a mission. And there's a great sense of pride when you can bring people in with that. I don't think the philosophy is all that difficult. Work hard, be honest. You have to be realistic. Don't start thinking that you're wonderful because you're wearing a command pin and that uh, you are accountable for everything and everyone. And I think that's missing in an awful lot of other, uh, other places in this world today, but you are accountable. So it goes well, good for you. If it doesn't go well, well, you're still, you're still the one who's both responsible and accountable for things happening. And at the end of the day, if you can't get your sailors to, to do what is right and, and follow you, then you're in the wrong business. Some of the things that, that happen routinely with a battle group, uh, for starters, on, on an aircraft carrier, for example, well, with the air wing on, you have over 5,000 people. And the Navy will publish statistics of how many sailors are from towns smaller than the size of that crew. And then, then you know, there's always 100 or, or so every, every cruise. Uh, then there are people who um, leave their spouses and come home to, um, you know, to a, a new son or daughter. And the sacrifice there is not only are you not there for the birth of your son or daughter and to, and to support your, your, your spouse, but the other is um, they, they, they do it on their own. You might, you, know, you're, you might be lonely and, 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 and sorry you're not there, but you're also leaving them on their own to be supported by other, other Navy families, other friends, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and other, other relatives. But I was one of those new fathers. Uh, I have two sons and a daughter, two, uh, uh, one Naval aviator and one uh, special operations officer, EO, the dirty dozen, EOD Mobile Unit 12. And my daughter, who's... Um, trauma and, and uh, emergency department nurse, uh, nationally certified, was born in August of uh, 1990 when I was uh, off Liberia when we were doing the evacuation. So you end up having, uh, having a real conflict because in this case, West Africa, three-party civil war, people starving, people... Uh, dead bodies in the streets and yet back home uh, your wife's giving birth uh, uh, to your child and the satisfaction I guess is that you're doing something real so every young man who comes off the ship and I, and I, and I imagine now that, that the, when the female sailors are pregnant I, I, they're sent back back home at a certain point in their pregnancy but for the rest of the new dads coming off the ship, they've given up what an awful lot of people just take for granted that, uh, hey, you know, it's, it's time we go to the hospital and, and, you go, and you go through childbirth. But your time is not going to childbirth classes with your spouse. You're, you're evacuating uh, a war-torn country or you're patrolling the, the South China Sea with uh, the Chinese playing games with you. Or you're in the Mediterranean back when the Soviets had a had a larger presence, and they were they were playing games. So it's um, it's a commitment, 
it is certainly a different way of life, and it's and that sometimes it is is very rewarding and very satisfying, and other times it's just plain hard. It's just difficult, and yet we still send. I, I call them kids now, but we still send youngsters out every day with the Navy Marine Corps team, whether you're flying overhead or in a, a submarine or uh, on a, on a, uh, a surface squadron, a carrier battle group, or a Marine Corps or amphibious uh, amphibious ready group. But we still uh, are out there every day of the year, and I got to tell you, there there's some special there's some special youngsters. I had the misfortune of having two fires at sea while I was uh, chief engineer. And going into one of the fires, I had, uh, as, as I was looking at the, the team ready to go, I, I, there was something odd about just one of the guys dressed out. And I couldn't put my finger on it until I realized he wasn't wearing a shirt. When the f- alarm was sounded, he hopped out of his rack, threw on his trousers and, um, and his boots, and then went to the firefighting locker and put on all his firefighting equipment, but did not have a T-shirt or a long sleeve shirt on. And what I saw was, was bare skin, essentially, from his shoulder to his, uh, his bicep. That's the sort of dedication when something happens where a sailor responds. And it's, it's, it's not a joke because you're, when you have a fire or the misfortune of flooding, and I have not had flooding, but when you have a fire at sea, you just can't retreat and call the fire department and hope that somebody comes to save you. You have to fight it yourself. Those are the sorts of things that people understand. And then, depending on the operation, the excitement of a real operation going into uh, the Indian Ocean the first time coming out of uh, the Suez Canal and the Red Sea into the Straits of Bab el-Mandeb on our way to uh, the Persian Gulf. When you go to general quarters and the bosun mate who calls it, calls it away doesn't say, this is a drill. I mean, this is for real. You don't know what you're going to get when you have a very narrow passage of the Straits of Bab el-Mandeb from the Red Sea into the Indian Ocean. You have uh, Asia on one side, the Arabian Peninsula on one side, and Africa on the other. And there are spots that are close enough or little islands that someone with a a shoulder-held missile launcher could uh, put some damage into a ship. So those sorts of things are uh, pretty key on everyone's mind. And then you share that experience, and that helps knit the camaraderie. Uh, Same thing when you're in humanitarian operation. Whether you're picking people up, uh, refugees out, out of the, literally picking them up from the sea out of the ocean, or when you go to a, uh, a small country that's been uh, damaged by a hurricane or, or tornado, and then you, you supply from, uh, from your ship, you supply them water, you supply them electricity, you have your medical teams, uh, and, and if you have CBs on board, depending on, on the ship. Uh, you are out there trying to restore some kind of order and to save them. All of these things happen when someone isn't necessarily shooting at you. So, you know, put a shooting war on top of it, then it uh, increases the the excitement just, uh, you know, just that much more. But the idea of spending all that time and doing something important, that is what knits a crew. 
after we uh, went through the shellback initiation, after we crossed the equator, uh, I had uh, the midwatch that night and happened uh, and was the first time that the Southern Cross came into view, that constellation. And I actually went out that the night was so clear and the horizon, just that the, the sky disappeared into the ocean at the horizon, but it was stars fore and aft, uh, port and starboard. And I actually went out on the bridge wing and stood up on the bulwark and on my tippy toes and reached up into the sky thinking that I might actually grab a handful of stars. It just seemed to be that close. And it was so wonderful. And we were, it was the rest, everything else was quiet. It was good weather. Things were clear. Uh, the only noise was, uh, was, was the ship itself uh, as we were steaming. And I thought, if you don't believe in something greater than yourself, then, then you're a fool. Because regardless of any religious preference or mother nature, I mean, this is just magnificent. That was Commander Ronald Leonard Smith, Sr. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.